Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. How are you? How's it going? I like your shoes. No way. He never. <gasps> that is so him. Uh, welcome one, welcome all. It's me, Sanderson. And uh, today we've got an amazing guest. James and I interview him. His name is Dr. Dean Burnett, but he's a pretty sort of cool neuroscientist guy. Doesn't make a big deal about that. And he as I said, is a neuroscientist. He's a comedian as well, an author. Uh, and like, but the thing that we're going to speak about wasn't very eloquent there. Uh, but, the re- uh, but the reason that I wasn't very eloquent is what we're going to talk about is something which is really personal to him. Uh, we're going to be speaking about the neuroscience of grief, which he learned about when his father died from COVID. And so he's one of the hundreds of thousands, millions of people who have lost a relative due to COVID. Uh, and the story is you know, it's really moving. It's really insightful. And because he's a smart guy, he's gone and done some pretty deep thinking about it. And there's going to be lots in there for everyone about the specific pandemic about grief uh, about yeah, really about so much so it's a wonderful conversation and i can't wait to share it with you a uh, bit of housekeeping at the start there is also the lifefulness community that is something which i am going to make more of an effort to mention i sort of mention it but i don't do enough and so we meet twice a month on the first and third Wednesdays of the month online and it is an awesome community and what we do is we come together to discuss these topics which come up on the podcast and then the idea is that we're going to meet up like online to begin with but as there are more people in the area it will lead to local in-person connections so go and check it out it's underneath in the uh, you know, wherever you're listening to this, it's probably underneath it. And the other thing is that I had a great piece of feedback from Ross Llewellyn, a friend from Sunday Assembly and a listener. And it was uh, his response to our first birthday podcast. And he said, uh, something struck me whilst listening to the birthday life on this podcast episode. What if embodying the pillars of uh, the lifefulness model structure involved individuals defining for themselves and writing down how they will hold that value? Maybe this is obvious, but when James said the phrase, one of my core commitments, it adjusted my idea of the model in powerful ways. Perhaps we're invited to place blocks to form our pillars of ultimate meaning, community, etc. And it was amazing to get this because... It's just wonderful to know that what we're talking about is reaching people. And it really made me think, I want to go and hear more from people about this because the whole sort of purpose behind the Lifefulness Project, you know, we want to help people live life as fully as possible. And the way we do that is by showing that the techniques that are used in spiritual communities can be applied by anyone. But as part of it, it's not saying, oh, by the way, everyone's got to do this. Everyone's got to do that. Everyone's got to uh, go and jump on their leg on a Thursday, whatever it might be. Like Ross really got to the heart of it. It's about giving a framework, which then 
you know, different people can go and uh, find the things that work for you. So around contemplation and celebration, our translation of worship. You know, for some people, it's going to be dancing until they're dead tired. For some people, it's going to be sitting very quietly. Others might want to meditate by jumping into a freezing stream. Maybe you want to sit silently for hours. It is not about saying there's this one way of doing it or there's that one way of doing it. It is instead about trying to provide the framework, which also helps you go and think about how you're already meeting that in your life and to go and sort of appreciate how we tend to the sacred in our own lives because we're already reading about stuff. We're already creating community. We're already trying to make the most of it. So really recognizing that and then asking, okay, how can I do this even more intentionally? And one of the reasons I read that out at the start is I would love you to get in touch about this stuff. Uh, tweet at me at Sanderson Jones. Uh, tweet at James at Croft. Croft Speaks. Get in touch in any way and... Yeah, we'll want to go and get your voices into this because we talk about community, but we should really use this to foster community. So thanks, Ross. Can't wait to hear more from you. Can't wait to hear more from everyone. And now I'm going to get out of the way and give you the amazing Dean Burnett. Hey there, Dean. Welcome to the Lifefulness podcast. I'll say that as though we've just got on the call and I haven't been... <laughs> Fanning about trying to find headphones. How are you today? I'm good, man. I'm good. It's a sunny day here, which is odd because uh, it hasn't been the last few. It's been, um, well, ironically, it's been biblical in terms of rain and downpour. <laughs> so, uh, that's kind of handy. Uh, but yes, now it's currently sunny again because, um, well, the weather's on shuffle lately, isn't it? It's basically you know, the best of weather. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't know what you're gonna, you can't skip it, though. So you've got to just power through. But uh, yes. Nice day. Um, very, very straightforward approach. I've uh, recently handed in my um, first draft of my latest book, which is uh, this uh, it was close to a year and a half late, perhaps more than that. Okay. Was there uh, anything which happened in the past year and a half which knocked you off schedule? <laughs> yeah, slightly. Yeah, you know, that, 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 is, uh, that was a big part of it, obviously. I mean, but it was, it, if I'm being completely honest, it was late anyway, because it was, um, I'm sure this will come up, uh, it was meant to be, uh, sort of lighthearted and um, informative, but fun look at emotions and where they come from in the brain, how they work, and so on and so on. And I agreed to that book um, under the assumption that the, the science was uh, well established. Um, I started writing the book, oh, oh, it is not, it is not by any stretch of the imagination. So either I can lie, which is pretty bad for, a, <laughs> for someone who's becoming a prominent science writer. Or, I mean, I'm yeah, not, I think I, it I, is. Yeah. I think epistemically that's challenging for you in your role. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I know some who've done it, let's be honest, but it's, uh, <laughs> I like to think I'm not going to do that. Uh, or I can sort of revise the book to incorporate what actually is known or believed to be the case. Uh, so I did that. And then I sort of, it's like when you put on a thread, you know, like, oh, now I've got this. So I pull, oh, hang on, wait, this connects to 6,000 other things, which I didn't know about. Okay, better, better incorporate that. And then, oh, no, these 6,000 these six connect to 20,000 other things, which, oh, all right, okay, so I've got to revise it again. Yeah, so it became a just a mess, really. And then uh, pandemic hit. And, uh, you know, lost someone very close to me in the most brutal circumstances. And then it became about that. All, like, all I could do because of the situation was sit and write. And so I wrote about that and finally finished it. And now it's in. And now I'm sort of in that weird state of when you've been doing something nonstop, you know, every waking moment for six months, say, uh, trying to meet a deadline. And then you, you meet it and you send it in. And like, uh-huh, okay, so... So, so what do I do now then exactly? I'm, I'm trying to imagine like marathon runners uh, who've been training for one to get the end to go, 
yeah, I did it. Line. <laughs> what 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 happens now? So, I mean, that sort of um, you know that sort of limbo state. But I'm quite enjoying it because it's this low pressure. Well, I'm glad that we can take advantage of your limbo state uh, to get you on the pod. Yeah, it's going to be quite a weird juxtaposition because one of the reasons we asked you on is to go and speak about the loss of your father and the neuroscience of grief, uh, as well as the other sort of things people have been experiencing in the pandemic. Uh, and yet, the Lifefulness Podcast. What we do is we look to the con congregation and spiritual communities and say, how can we adapt that model in a secular and scientific way so that everyone can benefit from these years of traditions? And there's, it can be quite complicated to explain it like that. But the simple one is, if you were to treat life as if it was sacred, how would you live? And so what is it in life that for you is sacred? What's the things which really switch you on the most? I mean, I, you hear so many people talk about what's the meaning of life and like, what's it for? And diehard scientists, I suppose, I can't really say it's for anything in the sort of in the grander sense because obviously that would suggest there is a divine plan behind everything and you know, I, I, I get some people who find that very comforting and so uh, you know find that reassuring but I can also see that can be misapplied you know it's uh, when someone experiences extremely hard times like I did and uh, you know someone says to you well it all happens for a reason as well Balls to the reason and balls to you. I don't want to. I don't, I don't care. I, don't, I wasn't. I wasn't. You know, I didn't sign up to this. I wasn't consulted about anything. So, um, so I, I'm not. I, I do think that's uh, for a lot of people to use that as a cop out. So, but I do like to think that one of the you know, most important things about life and human life, I think, and specifically our existence, is the ability to bring about change, ability to bring about improvements, advancements, progress, and that is a big thing for me. Like I'm. One thing I sort of fundamentally would like to say is that when I do finally pass on, I'll have left the world in a slightly better way when I arrived in it. Uh, you know, we could argue like that. Well, that would have happened without you, mate, as well. <laughs> Let me have this, mate. You know, I'm, 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 in this scenario, I'm on my deathbed. Are you going to be that cruel? <laughs> but, um, but it was, you know, but it, I think it's important because you know, I think I know, I, I know and I, I, I can buy the books I've written and the the things I put out there and sort of trying to explain things about you know uh, mental health depression neurological stuff i know people have benefited from that because they've told me the, the very reason i have a writing career is ironically and perhaps you know, bittersweet because robin williams died in the way he did uh, and robin williams passed away by taking his own life by suicide and it was a huge news story and at the time i was a guardian blogger and i, I sort of logged into work that morning sort of saw the news and all the fallout from the you know, the tragic news story and when already you smashed off a quick blog saying he deserved it i'm glad he's gone and <laughs> that notoriety has kept you going you know, now i probably could do that i would probably make a fortune <laughs> off it and that's that's a whole other problem you know? yeah 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 <laughs> you can easily see someone like piers morgan on spike going oh, i tell you who deserved to die today <laughs> <laughs> Ah, oh, delicious clips. yes i can uh, definitely imagine piers morgan doing that yes absolutely yes so um but Similarly, it was um, not quite that bad, but there were plenty of people, like high profile and otherwise, saying, "Well, he was selfish. It was it was selfish him to do that. You know, he he's a bad man for doing it like this because of all the grief and pain he's caused people." And he, that was a very common thing. Still, is quite common, depressingly, but not so much, I think, uh, when someone high profile like, takes their own life by suicide. And people will say, "Oh, it's so selfish to do that." And uh, you know, like, but as someone who is a neuroscientist who's done a you know doctorate in neuroscience who has you know was, was working and has worked at the time i was working in a psychiatry program i was the the lead lecturer and tutor for you know, an advanced psychiatry program 
So when I talk about Doug Green, because of mental health, that was very much what I was doing all day, every day. And on a personal note, I'm from Bridgend, in South Wales. And for those who don't know, like in the early 2000s, we had a uh, quote, unquote, suicide spate. You know, there was that news story that a lot of young people in Bridgend were taking their own lives. And if you look at the actual data behind it, there were, you know, statistically, it wasn't that unusual for an area that size, that population, blah, blah, blah. But, but the fact that it was covered in the way it was, so... Uh, you know, darkly, so morbidly, the media goes, "Ooh, what's going on with all these poor working class wretches?" You know, it was very much um, that sort of thing, and it didn't glamorize it. But, you know, like when you recover suicide, you do it in certain ways. And so I've always got a bit of a beam about about this anyway. So I saw this stuff about Robin Williams' part. You know, dying out being how he was selfish, and I was doing my Guardian blog at the time. Did a very quick blog, it was like ninety minutes took me, and say, "Look, look, it's not selfish. That's not how depression works. Put it out there." And they said, "Well, you know, we'll put it up, but." You know, it's a very busy day topic and no guarantee anyone will see it. Goes, I know, but I just feel better for having said something. And it ended up being the most popular blog on that site for, like, for the rest of the week. You know, it got about two million hits in uh, three days. And I had people message me saying, because of what you've said, I now feel like I can make peace with my own father's suicide. Or people are saying like, well, my mother's a depression ages. Now I understand why it's so hard for it and why it's not personal. So... I know, thanks to what people have told me, that I have made someone else's life better. And I think that, that I think, is why life is sacred, because you can do that. And I argue you should do that. You can make the world a better place. And, well, if you can, why, why wouldn't you? And I suppose that is, that's the ultimate point for me, uh, if, in so much as it is one. I mean, I, I don't think like this all the time. I have two kids. I have, like, stuff to do. So <laughs> I wake up this morning, how shall I improve life today? Like, oh, God, Monday. That's more my usual uh, <laughs> usual defaults. But, you know, the, that, that, does, that does occur. It, it is a nice thing to, to fall back on. I love how often people on this podcast think that, oh, God, sorry, I'm just wanging on about the meaning of life or, oh, I've, I've been going on. It's like, no, no, this is, this is exactly the space to go and speak about these things. I think that often points to in the day-to-day -day life, you don't get to have a, a chance to think about what's the most important thing in life. So thanks so much for that. And then next question we ask is always like, if there's one thing you think the modern, increasingly secular world could learn from religion, what would it be? Well, I think you've uh, that, that's the word I would really uh, point to is uh, community. Humans are an incredibly social species. First and foremost, that is what we are. We are social, we are communicative, we are friendly. And I know like you think that's a ridiculous thing to say when you look at Know, the news at any point ever <laughs> you'll all look at um like go on twitter for upwards of three minutes you, you don't think people are friendly you think they're awful yes of course there'll be plenty of bad examples and plenty of people who are actively uh, outwardly unkind and malicious for whatever reason um whatever they they might think they have valid reasons for it or not but either way but you think you've got to factor into just how many people there are on this planet over seven billion now like more than any other species of our scale and just how rarely we actually inflict harm on each other based on you know, some other species. Like if you had, um, like I've said this on stage in uh, places like done like the Apollo or done like sort of book talks and there's like 400 people there. And I say like, you know, there's 400 people, 400 human beings sat here in this room, just staring at someone they don't know, quietly, peacefully, just, um, you know, staring straight ahead and uh, put up with each other. And that's, if they were chimps, you know, like if there was 400 chimps in the room, like, give it 10 minutes, there'd be 200 chimps and there'd be blood and, <laughs> blood and feces everywhere. And, you know, like, like I said, I mean, Jonglos has closed down now. I never actually got to do that. But, um, 
there are some gigs which have sort of elements of that similar but, atmosphere yeah you know and similar outcomes rather than not a little bit more uh, especially on a saturday night perhaps a few stag parties in you never know what's going to happen but uh that is uh you know but that's chimps can't do that like they, they have a sort of a much lower threshold for how many other chimps they can just handle being around them because they see them as rivals potential competitors threats and so on i always think that the uh the picnic the humble picnic the most banal thing there can be where people just bring up they just bring something they share it with the other person everyone you're like oh no guys you're doing non-kin food sharing this is this is the stuff which no other animal on earth can do this just leads to pretty much this leads to fights and people dying in other circumstances uh but there we go we just take it for granted but totally yeah like humans invented friends and that's such a sort of it seems so commonplace but it's such a profound thing we care deeply about other people who we haven't got any blood ties with we don't look we're not wanting to mate with they just like having them around we find them useful they find us useful we enjoy their presence that's actually really quite cognitively uh, a massive leap to make i mean you could say like other you know insect colonies are much more but they, they, that's a whole different thing like they are almost like a shared consciousness they're not individuals and to be the point of herd animals if you look at actually the um behavior of herd animals they just they put up with each other's presence but when they're being chased all of them are constantly trying to get to the center so it means like you know it's like the old joke like you know you never run a bay i don't have to I just have to outrun you and that's sort of um that's pretty much you know it's a you know survival of the fitter still but we don't do that so much we are cooperative and i think that's sort of where religion comes from originally all sharing on the same idea the same belief and that's why a lot of people find you know, people say people in religions are more centered or they have better well-being or they're more sort of happy generally you can argue you can argue the toss of that these things are really hard to measure but if they are i don't necessarily think it'll be because they have some sort of spiritual enlightenment or uh you know like um there, there will be an element of if you you know if you think if you believe in like an afterlife or a supreme being or whatever your taking religion is then you know there are answers to life which people who aren't really just don't have like so why are we here where does this all come from oh just god did it it's it's an easy it's a straightforward answer and therefore you have less uncertainty and you have less things to stress about but it is um you know it's a two-way thing I mean, some people say that maybe religious people are more centered generally but when something goes wrong it's a lot harder because i think not, it's not just oh a misfortune it's like oh god hath forsaken me which is you know <laughs> it's a much more profound thing that my car's broken down well, that's just a bit of bad luck my car's broken down the creator of the universe decided that I should suffer. Like that's, it's going to have more of a, it's like, no, I haven't seen it uh, for ages. I think, I mean, Alexis Sale mentioned it once. I think there is a lot of, um, uh, it's similar research in like the workplace, uh, no, different sort of community, you know, I guess you could say people worship the dollar, but that's, uh, I'm not sure it's an official sanctioned religion, but might as well be. Well, James lives in America. Would you say the worship of the dollar is an official religion over there? Not official, but definitely unofficial. <laughs> yeah. it's not Black quite Friday being yeah. the holy day. Yeah, yes, you know, like indeed. I, I can argue, given like some of the uh, you know, um, fundamentalist communities, that you know the, they, they are very um, you know, the evangelicals. They do worship money. It is all about you know look after your own, keep what you've got, give us money, sort of stuff. So Creflo uh, Dollar is certainly, or, or the prosperity yeah, gospel, Joel yeah. Osteen folk. The, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of Joel Osteen. His face is 95% teeth, and then the rest is sort of gel. And what skin you can see is tanned, right? I'm going to guess. <laughs> oh, very tanned. His <laughs> wife, uh, he sleeps in his wife's hair. <laughs>
yeah. That's a lot of stuff going on. But um, uh, the, yeah, yeah. well, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I never have to do this with guests, but you are a great guest because you're always talking and you're always interesting. Okay. And I could just let you go. But in <laughs> fact, we, if, if, you give, if you give James a nice sight of let's talk about the health benefits of religion in order in their different forms, it would just become a very different podcast, which we might have to get you on later. But the, I suppose the specific thing that we like wanted to talk to you about was, you know, really, like, I suppose we would like the neuroscience of the pandemic, but there's like, that's a very dumb way of putting it because you had a, I mean, your, your dad died and it would be great to just hear that story and then reflect on the sort of lessons from it and other things. But yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it does sort of feed into what I was saying anyway. So it, mm. you know, it's not the two uh, not too indirect or too massive <laughs> no. a tangent, but um, I will say that was the politest way I've ever been told to shut up in my life. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't let you talk while we have things to do. Be quiet, be quiet. That's, I was uh, once in a work meeting and I got, uh, Sanderson, there's, you are a sort of thinker speaker. And so like what you do is that when you're, as you're thinking, you're speaking yeah. and it would be really great if maybe, you know, you just try to sort of like do that internally and yeah. then express it. I was like, I've just been told to think before I speak in a <laughs> yeah. very nice way. Yeah. And I only worked that out as I was leaving. <laughs> yeah. you, you inhabit an audible mind space. We were more of a, a non-vocal mind space. I, I get it. I get it. But, um, yeah. So it was, I mean, I was, I've been on the record about it because I do think it's really important to talk about these things. I am one of the many hundreds of thousands of people who lost someone because of the pandemic uh, very early on. Like my father was only 58. He, um, he had no prior health concerns apart from, uh, gallbladder operations from like six years earlier so you know, that's a very routine um caught covid early on sort of seemed to recover from it but it was still a bit you know, weak had a relapse and you know was ended up in hospital constantly you know, regularly on the phone messaging and stuff because he couldn't talk he was just too busy to catch his breath got him into hospital um sort of gave him all the meds and all the treatment and spoke to him on whatsapp uh, over on the video where he's on the oxygen mask and sort of in good spirits just talking to us and stuff and then um uh, next, he had a relapse, went on a ventilator, never spoke to him again, never got to say good. Well, I saw, said, said goodbye over WhatsApp. Uh, as he was unconscious, obviously. Um, the consultant is holding up the phone to his ear, which isn't how I ever wanted to say goodbye to my father or any parent or anyone. Like, I have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, well, I'm a scientist. Like, I've said this on the radio, try to be as rational as possible wherever I can. Um, but I was given like 15 minutes notice uh, to say, you know, you're going to have to speak to your father and for the last ever time in 50 minutes, uh, you know, this is just how it's got to be because we don't know if he's going to last the rest of the day. Um, he did last on the two days, it turns out. But, you know, once you've said it, you don't, <laughs> it's not, there, are, there are no do-overs. Um, and like I was wearing my pajamas. It was that time of morning, so Saturday morning, uh, mid -pan early pandemic, lockdown, I haven't been anywhere, I haven't seen anyone. And I've, so I haven't worn those pajamas since because those are the garments I spoke to my father for the last ever time in and using them as a sort of sleeping garment seems weird, but I've, but I've not thrown them out either. And it's one of those things of, I, I, <laughs> I link that moment, to these raggedy old pajamas I've got, and I don't know how to process that. I don't know, I don't know what to do with that. I just come in the cupboard. I don't need to think about that, but it's something like, I keep coming back to it, but the cupboard is just there. Those are what I was wearing when I said goodbye to my father. And that's not how I ever wanted it. It's not how I wanted to do it. And um yeah, a lot of emotional impact and fallout from that, of course, because I you know, couldn't see anyone. Like, it was lockdown. And 
although you know people say oh well you know in those circumstances you would be forgiven for wanting to see your family and stuff which true but the reason for lockdown happening was the thing that had just killed my father so i was you know especially sensitive to the restrictions and lockdown the requirements so you know it was like a torn between two emotional poles of anyone would forgive me but also i'd never forgive myself if i spoke to someone and contracted or gave it to them if i happen to have it or whatever and you know for pers- from a personal perspective like there was no reason for him to die from it so like, he was a sort of a bigger guy but he was no by no means exceptional he wasn't even that old if he had some vulnerability and i'm his only son so if anyone else is going to have it it'll be me and you know, I, have, I have that to contend with too and like this thing everyone's shrugging off as oh it's no worse than the flu uh, usually spoken by people who have never had the flu i noticed um uh, so yeah, it was it was a very uh, emotionally tumultuous time, very very difficult. So you know, a lot of the stuff which happened with the pandemic, all the arguments, had a far more personal frisson for me. Like the 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 whole Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, like oh he'll do it. He just did what any responsible father would do. Like I I don't remember ever being that angry about anything when you know I would just endured the worst pain in my life to protect and gone through it alone to protect others and. Your mate who rates speeches for you, he's like the really wants, you know, screw him and screw screw all you. And then yeah, it was just you no, know, just it's been emotionally kicked in the teeth repeatedly by everyone, like all the pundits saying, Oh, it's no, it's all no fuss about nothing, like it's all harmless. And yeah, it it, it was a trying time, a very trying time. I you know it can't can't say I'm over it, because you, you don't ever get over something like that, but I'm in a better place, you know. I can talk about it quite freely and readily. So so yeah, so <laughs> long-winded answer. Not sure I actually answered anything, but um, it's an accurate retelling of the experience. You've been writing a book on the emotions, and you're a neuroscientist, and you have this incredibly intense first-person experience of a very powerful series of emotions that you had to to go through in a very unusual way. And I was wondering how that affected the ideas you were exploring in your book and in your written work, whether you know, you had to reevaluate things or learn more things when that happened. Um, well, it completely reshaped the book. That is what my next book is now. It's part, you know, scientific exploration of emotions. It's part grief journal. It was written in real time, essentially. Like I started, I went right to the back to the start. And when my father first went into hospital, I started writing about it because, you know, I was worried about him. I was stressed and I was panicked and I wanted to, you know, when someone's ill, when you care about deeply, you want to do something. You want to be there for them. You want to help. Couldn't do any of that because it was lockdown and you know, quarantine. So I, I couldn't even leave the house without doing so, you know, special permission. So all I could, the only vent, the only outlet was the right So I started doing that. And then he passed away when I was on like chapter two. And that then became, so it, it, it was a very useful experience. And I mean, I know grief diaries are something people, uh, therapists and psychiatrists advise if you're struggling with grief. You know, write down your feelings, give them now let give them a presence and that is something i've learned a lot doing like the book and my own experience is to if you can make your feelings tangible in some way it does help whether it's you know by acting them out or you know like people say you know screaming the wall punching pillows and stuff that that's that's something that actually gives this powerful but intangible and specific feeling a form may not be a permanent form may not be lasting but it's something something for your brain to work on and a lot of therapies actually work along those lines it's like an avatar therapy now where 
um, the audio or hallucination. Watch the, movie, watch the movie Avatar. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's, that's not normally a cause for therapy, rather. Than <laughs> I was going to say that wouldn't make anyone better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it's like well, maybe insomnia if you were <laughs> from that. But, but yeah, but it was um, it's basically uh, software avatars created to represent the the audio hallucinations you hear during schizophrenia and psychosis. And by sort of saying, like, I can hear these voices, but where are they coming from? You've got a computer, a computer image saying they're coming from there. And that sort of gives it parameters. Your brain goes, oh, okay, well, I can, I can deal with that better. Or they do things like biofeedback or neurofeedback, where they hook you up to a monitor, heart monitor, brainwave monitor, and you have an anxiety spike. They don't say, stop being anxious, because you can't do that. That's not how anxiety or feelings work. <laughs> right. Be more confident! Yeah, <laughs> chill out, man. Like this, the therapists don't tend to say that because that's that, usually that's unhelpful. I find. <laughs> uh, we once told my dad to chill, and his response. You know, you've got those little phrases in your family which keep on coming back. Mm-hmm. It was chill, chill, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a yeah, big yeah. guy. He's bigger than me. Yeah. Six foot five. He's got a lot of weight behind that. It was like weeks. <laughs> you saw first so if i do I, I, I find i think that's okay so um, but yeah that's um totally yeah but with this, the, the feedback thing then they show you your heart rate or your brain waves and stuff so if you have a an anxiety episode or whatever it is they don't say calm down they say try and reduce these levels so you're not sort of thinking about how you're feeling you think okay so i can see this beep 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 okay so what if i so you know it, it just gives it a sort of you know, gives it parameters gives it um makes it more tangible and right in the book about it, it did that for me. It certainly was really helpful. And it has helped my output writing a great deal because before now, I've always, you know, upfront and openly admitted that I've never, that I'm aware of, experienced any mental health problems of my own. I've always been, you know, uh, you know I've had ups and downs like every other human has, but I've never had you know, a mental health situation which stopped me functioning. You know, I had breakups and I was sad for a few days and that's what happens. You mean you're meant to feel like that, but I was never sort of debilitated. Uh, so whenever I'm talking about mental health stuff, I'm always introducing the caveat: this is just the science. This is just what data shows us. I can't tell you how you're feeling, or I will never dare to lecture anyone else about how they feel and what they're going through because I don't know. It's subjective anyway. It's really subjective, and it's really um, you know, like, uh, it's very unique to each individual person. But I never experienced it. But now I, although I never got to the point where I couldn't function. I can say I have a much better idea of what it's like to be completely uh, in the grips of powerful emotions and negative feelings and spiraling moods and stuff. You know, it, it just hit me sometimes randomly, and there were days when I felt really, really awful, and some days when I felt kind of just flat, it's like you know, just get through it, flat affect, as they say, like like your brain's emotion system has gone. Oh, I'm just done for today. I'm just, I'll come back tomorrow. I got nothing else to give right now. You know, and some days I wake up and I felt good, not sort of you no. Know, Hey, like I feel fine today. And then I realized my father had just died, and I felt bad about feeling good, which because like emotions do not have any particular <laughs> logic has no real grip on emotions. They just do whatever they want, and like, later on you can just go, oh, sorry, shouldn't have done that. So, so yeah, so it was good for me as a person to, you know, as a science writer especially, to to go through this, to experience what it's like to be at your lowest ebb. Because um, you know, I had ups and downs, like I say, but. You know, I'm a sort of straight white guy with a good education and you know, married, two kids and stuff. So I don't have uh, the adversity a lot of people deal with. I mean, I still, it's not like, not completely that way. I'm still working. Making me Welsh. feel real shitty about my uh, mental health challenges there. 
Oh, that's the plan. <laughs> that's my customer promise. <laughs> Feeling bad now? Feel worse at the end. And I always deliver. The Dean Burnett guarantee. That's going to be on the back of the book now. So it's, a... it's the back of all I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering, Dean, you've also written on your blog about how some public figures have been talking about COVID in a dismissive way that seems to kind of dismiss people's grief or belittle it. And I wonder how that is for you, because not that's kind of stepping into a potentially sort of political or cultural discussion that maybe a science writer doesn't always step into. So was that new for you, kind of pushing back against how this pandemic has been written about by other people and say, actually, no, you need to be more sensitive. How was that for you? Yeah, it's, I'm sort of, you know, I, I'm a, my go-to social network is Twitter because I like to, you know, like that one. Facebook is full of ads and stuff, and uh, but I know it's the most powerful one. So I'm, you know, given my age and, and Twitter presence, that's my out, outlet. But still, you know, I'm, I'm active on most of them. Um, haven't gone to TikTok yet. I'm reliably assured it's for the under 23s. So I thought, you know, Really don't have the look to get away with that. People, might I think you'd calling. be a hit on TikTok, Dean. <laughs> well, I can see it now. Possibly, but you know, not not for probably the reasons I want. Which is, it's a tricky one. Uh, but yeah, so I, I tend to avoid actual political debate, discussion, or getting really stuck into the you know the uh, the current current uh, furore, whatever it happens to be. Because I do think most of it's too polarized, and a lot of it is. There's no nuance to it. It's just one side fighting the other side. And there's no one's, if it, people are interested in learning more about either argument, fair enough. But I don't think that's the objective with a lot of it. It's more about scoring points and showing your side that look what I'm, what I'm doing. I do it often enough, like, but as long as it's someone who's just been open, obviously wrong or obviously idiotic. And then there's, if it's sort of superior to me in sort of social status type, you know, if they're more famous, more powerful, fair enough. I don't mind having. You know, making a gag about that sort of thing, but also from a sort of you know, logical perspective, I you know I, I a lot of people read my books, a lot of people read my work, and I'm occasionally you, know, you reference the news in like the Telegraph, the Times, or even the Mail on occasion. And if I was sort of you know doubt myself uh, or like do stuff which maybe going about it, oh hard lefty guy, then I would I'd probably get a lot less work from those uh, outlets. I mean. There's a financial incentive, of course, but it's not great. But it's a sort of thing that I'm of the mentality that people who believe the output of those publications are the ones I should be reaching. I should be trying to talk to. It's like, you know, yes, here's how depression works. If people who read the mail and the express and stuff read that and perhaps take any of it in, then I'll have improved the situation somewhat. You know, it's um whereas if I come in saying, oh, this lefty idiot says this, then they automatically will dismiss everything I say. So I do try and stay out of it for that reason, you know, I think to, to maintain a sort of, at least a, an impression of neutrality, which means I wouldn't necessarily be dismissed outright. And that's, you know, that's my usual approach. But yeah, during the, um, when various pundits and stuff were dismissing the pandemic as, you know, as a nonsense or, uh, just uh, trumpeting the you know, individual freedoms, rah, rah, rah stuff. It did you know, go to the point where I was like, I can't just ignore that. You're Because it's telling me that my experiences, my, my lived experiences, the worst time of my life, the most deep and intense emotional pain I've ever experienced, didn't happen. And if I am talking about it, then I'm lying. And that's not something I should have to just take and put up with. 
because it you know, happened a lot. I was, you know, people were telling, not, not to me personally, but it just, you know, these people who, everyone who died was already sick, apparently. I had it very recently. I sort of complained about, complained, I made a tweet about, um, you know, the importance of still maintaining COVID uh, awareness, because obviously we're post, post Freedom Day and all that sort of stuff. And, all of the discussion, but someone said, "Well, I don't see why we should lock down for a, you know a disease which only affects one percent of the population." And you know, basically, just tell me my dad's death is irrelevant. So thanks for that, but I'm not going to really engage with you in that. They said, "Well, I lost two people as well, so I'm just as bad as you." But you're you're not because you it clearly didn't affect you as badly. If they you clearly just saying that, but also just mathematically, one percent of the population in the UK that's seven hundred thousand people. That's twice the body count of World War Two. Why is that negligible? And so it, I get it. Like, I know a lot of it isn't, you know, the people who are like the big high-profile pundits. I'm sure that like they know exactly what they're doing in terms of. They don't really think that. Oh, it's all the government trying to suppress your rights, man. It's they just know that. Oh, there are plenty of people who believe this. And if I say it, I'll get the attention. I'll get the clicks. I'll get the headlines. And I'm going to pay my, you know, I can pay my life, pay for my lifestyle for the next couple it's of weeks. It's the Fox News thing where you, yeah. uh, you have to wear a mask in, inside the company. You have to be vaccinated to go into the office, uh, and then the moment the lights get switched off, masks are awful, and vaccination is the devil's seed. It is uh, disgusting. Ironically, it is a mask. It's all anti-mask stuff. <laughs> yeah. It is a false pretense for so many of them, and. It is just to sort of, you know, just to generate attention, generate clicks. It's for profit. And that I find that unacceptable. Obviously, I do. I don't agree with that by any stretch of the imagination. There's, you know, so everyone's got to earn a living. No, not like that, they don't. There are plenty of ways which are, you know, you can earn a living which are illegal and perhaps more than should be. And, you know, to me, it sort of, it seemed very much like, you know, in, in the real, because it's the internet, people think it's fine or people think it's not as important. But if you were following a funeral procession, and you started beeping your horn because they were going too slow because you wanted to get to the pub. People would think you're a wanker, and you would be. You would be an absolute prick. <laughs> and but you do it online saying, "Oh, everyone's grieving; it's just wasting everyone's time. We need to get back to back to the shops." Like, no, no, you're an awful person for saying that. There's, I don't think there's any two ways about it. You are genuinely a bad, bad person, and you should be called as such. Well, I think. Then, that I, I, I suppose that I'm, I'm not disagreeing that they are a bad person, but I think if they met you in person. They would never dream of saying that to your well, face, absolutely, right? Yeah, and that's the thing is that they they wouldn't be a bad person there. Yeah, they totally, would. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like James is maybe given the look of that. In fact, there's some people in the US who would do that, but I think the US points to what happens if you keep on cranking that notch up. Is that <laughs> you you will get people to go past the normal bounds, but most folk really wouldn't like they would be you say your yeah. your your dad died and you are in some cafe in indiana or wherever it might be and someone who thought that would be like oh okay yeah that's the thing and it is i just think that the way online spaces dehumanize the people that you're observing but also dehumanize your thumbs as you say stuff that you would never dream of saying in uh like in person it's I, I i just don't understand the medium and or rather i understand it and want less of its outcomes yeah and that is again i actually covered that pretty much that thing in my in the last part of the book i've just submitted it's um you know it's people have experiences of grief they have certain things they expect certain things that are known to happen um they don't this whole 
five stages of grief model, but that's been that's been warped by TV a lot because it's the original. Um, Dr. Cooper Ross, she said that it's not them. Um, she never said it happens in this order for everyone. It was these are five things that happen in a lot of grief experiences. Might happen in random orders. Might get some stages, not others. Might do some again and again. But no, this is a, just a general description of what grief tends to look like. It wasn't like in like Scrubs kept saying it. This one, this one, this one, this one, and then you final stage. You're done. Ding. Grief over. Next patient, please. Like it's it doesn't go like that. So um, but you know, like the, people experience grief in different ways. They expect certain things, and I expected things I didn't get them. You know, when you're experiencing severe grief, usually your family rallies around and like all your family and friends they come and sort of help you out they take care of the cooking take care of you know look after the kids didn't have any of that none of that because you know everyone's isolating and also say standard experience of grief is not to be told that you're lying about it by thousands of strangers which which is uh, you know which i'm guessing is atypical for most people but those of us who lost people during the pandemic we had that we were told no you're lying you're, you're your relative was sick and they deserved to die. They were just drag on society. And like, that's not normal to have that. And um, thanks to the internet, we did. And that was, you know, that was fun. But also to have it from world leaders. You know, like, you know, that Boris Johnson wasn't saying it so much, but he was sort of hinting that, well, let the bodies pile high, blah, 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 all that sort of crap. But, you know, Trump was doing it. Definitely Bolsonaro was doing it. And other world leaders, you know, they were, when world leaders are saying it ends up on the news, how do you avoid that? No one say, well, don't, don't, don't look at the internet. But, I was isolated. This is the only human contact I've got right now in the throes of grief. What do you want me to do? <laughs> like, what do you want? Seriously, what do you want from me and people like me? No really easy answer. What did you do for the funeral? Because like, I think that certainly in my career as a sort of a host and public speaker and ceremony meister, and basically if I could say vicar, my job would get a lot easier. Secular vicar, self-appointed secular vicar. We'll go with that. I think the funeral is one of those places which shows the healing power of events in uh, most clearly because often if you're in the events business like you think you're slightly up your ass to say people are healed <laughs> right <laughs> because particularly i hang out with comics and so it's like okay oh, they just want to laugh like you can only really be funny if you don't take it too seriously in a certain manner of speaking and yet a bad like a bad funeral will have a hundred people in a room with all this like emotion sort of whirling, turning these tectonic plates grinding up against each other. And in a bad funeral, like that won't be processed. People will come out and something will have become knottier. Something will have built up. Uh, something won't be mentioned. Something will be mentioned. And it, as part of a grief process, which is a mental health process, which is a physical process, they will come out in a worse place than they were before. Whereas a good funeral, you know, the like something will be let go, something will be connected with. Uh, you will the, the emotions, which can be so difficult, which can build up into serious things, can actually sort of go somewhere. And and so I think it's so important. And I'm. Like, so I'm guessing you didn't probably have that sort of funeral. How, what did you do? Yeah, it was a socially distanced funeral. Like the, um, like that we had to do, like it was that yeah. or nothing. Um, 14 people could attend. And that was really hard because my father was an extremely popular man. Um, we like, we, we lived in Port Talbot. So when you left, the funeral just left Port Talbot, we had like good, like I'm saying like 300, 400 people lying in the streets to see him go by. And that was, 
heartbreaking, but it was also like very indicative of the sort of man he was and the people he you know, we had around him. I, I, it's a bit sort of but, um, bit sort of gallows humor, but I sort of imagine Princess Diana's funeral remade by S4C. That's a sort, that's a sort of you know, reenactment <laughs> for some reason. I don't know why S4C would do that, but they did. It would look like this. Um, so that was something, but yeah, it was you know, a fourteen-person funeral for a man who could have hundreds of people you know, turn up to see him go by, and that you know, is wake. It's been long delayed. His week is actually a time recording a week tomorrow, so we actually haven't had it yet, and that's going to be um, interesting. You know, like looking forward to it, obviously. But, but yes, it it wasn't a great funeral because it could be. Uh, we did the best we could. Like the vicar was one of his old friends, and uh, you know, we, we said goodbye all 14 of us to the immediate family um i didn't I, I had to set up a live stream for it which was a strange experience and because a lot of his friends weren't actually tech they had to do it via facebook i had to create a facebook event for my father's funeral which was emotionally confusing and that's an experience the um the mundanity and the sort of the frivolousness of it combined with the absolute gravity was surreal um it was also a bit of a distraction i guess that was something but you know we had 500 people tuning in for it so that was um but yes but like got, got the numbers though i was wondering yeah, yeah. whether it was churlish <laughs> to ask about the numbers but uh you brought it up so it's okay yes. yeah but like that's it wasn't like you know, the, the pay-per-view event of the season or anything. That's, <laughs> i don't think anyone like people were like, oh sorry i missed that is it on catch-up no no come on yeah, <laughs> yeah. My friend uh, Rob Hughes, comedian, he has um, <laughs> he has a joke like he's like, uh, see, I love the rugby. He's Welsh, obviously, well, and um, but you know, like the, the, the Wales game is on Saturday, and uh, my wife said, oh, but my father's funeral is a Saturday, so we don't know what to do. And she said, well, you can always record it and watch it later. And he goes, a bit morbid, <laughs> 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 which is uh, a lovely joke. Yeah, uh, Rob Hughes, but um, but come back to go back to what you, you said here. Like, yes, it's another thing religion does offer in that. The funeral isn't really for the deceased. It nominally is, but it's for those left. That is the whole point. It's about being able to do something because that's one of the reasons why loss and grief are so incredibly painful and stressful. They are fundamentally unfair. There is no circumstances where you can, I can imagine where someone close to you, someone you love dying, you will think, oh, well, that, that should have happened. That, 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 that is fair. That, that was the right outcome to this. We, we, are, we just don't work that way. The people we love are never, you know, we never think, well, it's time they died now, because that's just not how we work at all. No matter what age they are, no matter what circumstances, it always hurts. There's no way it can be fair. And unfairness is something the human brain really doesn't deal well with at all. You know, fundamentally, it causes stress. And loss of autonomy. When someone has died, that is ultimately, that's the thing you can do the least about. You have no control over this and you have no control of your own emotions. So it's a double, triple whammy of uh, loss of control. Like I, I can't do anything about this. And the funeral sort of reasserts a sense of control. Yes, they're gone, but I have said goodbye. We have said goodbye and we said it together. And it's also the fundamental emotional connections. You said like, you know, about suppressing the emotions I'm an all world up in your chest. The reason funerals are so sad <clears throat> for whoever goes to them because you can go to a funeral with like a friend just to support them and you will feel sad. You might have never met the deceased. You just know someone has died. And at the risk of sounding very, very cynical, thousands of people die every second. You don't know them, but they do. 
you don't feel sad about it because you know you just you have no connection when you go to a funeral you feel sad you feel awful because emotional contagion is a big part of the human experience we just pick up the signs and the cues of those emotions and we feel them ourselves when it's emotional contagion it's not empathy is different empathy is when you're talking to someone you think this person is sad i feel sad because i don't want them to be sad and i share their sadness emotional contagion is when you just feel the the atmosphere the, the, the mood in the room you don't know the source but you know it's there and that's why funerals are also sad you can say i could argue it's like churches are sad places but a baptism, baptism isn't usually sad or, or a wedding that's well, people cry at that it's happy it's happy sad or it's happy tears so it's not the location it's the the circumstance it's the it's the event it's the occasion and that is that's a big part of it because feeling sad that's that's what's, that's a really good important thing i did learn in the book and that the emotions we experience our brain processes them but to process them it sort of has to relive them because like the, the, the brain system which allows us to process emotions is largely the same one which triggers them, like, uh, creates them. So this is why, like, um, so it's always bugged me, but I finally found out. It's why people love sad films and sad music. You know, you think, well, the people don't, I don't like being sad. Why would I actively choose to <laughs> engage in entertainment, which makes me feel sad, a negative emotion? And it's because it's sort of, from a meta it's like a workout for your brain. It's like a brain going, okay, so this is sadness. I don't get to experience that very often, but I know it's important. And in this is the context, I can experience sadness in a very safe way. I don't know these people. These people are fictional, but I can relate to them. I can experience the sadness for the circumstance, for the story. I can then turn it off, and I can you know I'm I, I'm safe. I'm in a safe. Level. So it's yeah, it's it's very like same with angry music. There's a lot of studies that show that heavy metal fans, despite you know, the, the image they give off and the stereotype, they're amongst the least angry people, because all the all the anger they build up during their day or during daily life. They, they vent it during the music and the music goes, they have brains that are really good at handling anger because they listen to anger music all the time. Like the screaming, the aggressive lyrics, like the, uh, you know, going to gigs and doing the whole, ah, they work it out. And therefore their brains are really fit when it comes to dealing with anger. And funerals can do that as well. Like you have all the sadness from the loss. It's probably never going to go away completely, but going to the funeral, like experiencing it up close and personal in this most pure way with others, so you can share and like, and you can acknowledge other people's sadness too. You're not alone. The feeling of connection—that's like the feeling of empathy. That's a really big part of us getting through emotions and working through them. Th those are important, and that's why um, funerals are, you know, so important. To, whether you're religious or not, just having the ceremony, just having the ritual of saying this person was important to us and they are gone now, and we are sad. But to get together and say it officially, to market, you no, know, to organize an, an event and saying this is what's happening. We have to, you know, we can't do anything about it, but we can at least flag it up. We can highlight it and accept it in that respect. That's actually more psychologically impactful than I think most people will give it credit for. James, what's the thing that you see in your congregation around funerals? Like, it's obviously changed over COVID. Like, what's the sort of, uh, so are there any patterns that you're seeing? It has changed a bit during COVID. And I, I was listening to Dean talk about making the Facebook event for his father's funeral, right? And that is, that's the sort of bizarre, as exactly as you put it, combination of the, the mundane and the extraordinary that this weird period has forced all of us to do because I've done a lot of memorials for my members and for people who have died both of COVID and simply for other reasons over the past year, 
where you have to make a Facebook event and you have to figure out how to stream it to YouTube or whatever. And it's just this weird mismatch, mishmash of sort of everyday technology and, and this experience of deep loss. But on another level, it hasn't changed in the sense that the, the purpose of the funeral is exactly like you described, Dean, of firstly for the people left behind, not for the people who died really, to bring them together into a shared space to express shared feelings, to have a framework or a container in which to process those feelings, to organize them, to provide some sort of capstone on a, on a life, some sort of sense. It doesn't give people psychological closure. Does it because they're not they leaving them like, oh, that's done, you know, I'm keeping this emotional. But but what it does do is it gives some sort of shape to the experience such that what happens afterwards hopefully feels more like, you know, the lingering feelings after the after the curtain's gone down, right? There is really a curtain that has gone down. It it struck me how similar actually the virtual remembrances of people's lives have felt to the ones that I've officiated in person and how I often think that it's in the moments of helping a community process loss that people feel the value of our congregational community most. It actually gives people a very strong sense of our need to be together with others, particularly to process difficult emotions. And it frequently reconnects those people to the community at other times. They start coming more to our regular Sunday gatherings. They, they, they get a vivid sense of the value that our community is providing in their life at those moments. And it's very intriguing to me that, that, that kind of that is what it takes to remind people of the value of being in community with other human beings. Like it's, it's, a sad irony that people are most reminded of their need for each other when they're recognizing that one of their number is gone. But that's exactly how I experience it. I wish I'd seen him more often. Then why didn't you turn up to St. Louis Ethical Society more often? People say that all the time, though. They're like, And I feel that. I felt that about my own father when he died. Of course I felt. I wish I had called him more. I wish I, I lived in the United States for more than 10 years before he died. And I, I saw him very infrequently is the honest truth. And obviously I feel like I, and it's such a cliche because everybody says, almost everybody says, oh, I wish I'd done X, Y, and Z thing. And, um, but it does give you a profound sense of the finitude of experience and that you, that it doesn't go on forever, that you do have limited time and that that places a profound responsibility on you to use it well. So I find them very moving. I think, James, and it's weird that we normally let our guest wrap up. Uh, <laughs> but Dean, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I think there were a lot of I thought that we were going to get onto other parts of the pandemic and ever. And then the moment we started talking about this, it really was the only thing to talk about. And thanks so much, Dean. Uh, guys, go and find Dean Burnett online. Uh, he's on the internet in everywhere you expect Dean Burnett to be. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing that story. It was really moving. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dean. I loved that uh, interview. One of the things that I do is when they, after they're recorded, they go to our producer, he goes and tidies them up and gets them into shape. And then I go and listen again and... Yeah, it was just really moving. And 
it's wonderful when someone is able to communicate at that level of their feelings and for you to be there, then to suddenly go and pivot to the science behind that and the insights that they had from their own experience combined with their knowledge and then deepening it. And what I really loved at the same time, you know, then just making dumb jokes uh, because it is my belief that, you know, the sacred can be silly and the silly is sacred. And Dean just goes and summarizes that perfectly. I, yeah, I'm, I'm so impressed by the work he did before, but, you know, how he's gone and sort of used this pain and sort of built on it in a way which I know will really help others is amazing. Uh, and the one thing I did notice when editing it is that part of the start where he says what's most important to him is making a difference. And he is just so brilliantly, self-deprecatingly, self-abasingly humble about any change he's made. Like, as he, as he said, he's like written books and like written articles which have touched millions. And then he's like, I, yeah, I suppose I could see that maybe I don't want to get ahead of myself and maybe my work has, it, it might have helped someone. I and, and I've received emails from people, so I don't know if I'm overstating it, but I, I have made a difference. It was so great. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Go and give us a subscribe. If you're not subscribing, go and follow us at Sanderson Jones, at The Life on His Podcast, at Croft Speaks. I love you all. You are doing okay, no matter how you're doing, no matter what you're doing. And if you're not, that's okay too. Thanks to James. Thanks to Dean Burnett. Thanks to our amazing producer, Mavs Shetty. And thanks to Roman Rapak and Miro Shot for the music that you're listening to right now.